0: Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. A well-worn financial industry adage goes as follows. Past results may not be indicative of future performance. There's another area where this saying may be equally at home, and that's in relation to Earth's future climate. Our best models for estimating climate change remain notably imprecise. In, in its most recent assessment... The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change estimated that warming by the year 2100 could be as little as one degree Celsius or more than five degrees, a magnitude of warming that could have severe environmental effects. More recently, in January, NASA revised its predictions for the acceleration of sea level rise to take into account new data showing that the process is happening faster than previously forecast. The point here is that our understanding of future climate is constantly shifting, and the timing of temperature and sea level changes is far from certain. As new data and technologies emerge, and as political leadership changes, our assumptions about the future can be rewritten. And fundamentally, as we enter increasingly uncharted climate territory, past climate trends, like past financial performance, are likely to prove an imprecise guide to our future. Given this uncertainty... Decision makers in government and industry can be understandably wary of making bold investments to address a changing climate. On today's podcast, we'll look at an area of decision science that aims to provide decision makers with tools that may help them to better account for uncertainty, potentially freeing them to make the investments needed to transform energy systems and address climate impacts. My guest is Mark Allen Hughes, founding director of the Climate Center at Penn. Mark leads the center's pathways. What is deep uncertainty in the context of pathways, and how does it relate to energy, climate, and environment?
1: Well, that's a very large question, so I'm looking forward to kind of... Try to make it hard from the beginning. That's right. Get all the hard stuff out of the way early. Well, I think you're, you know, as you've already mentioned, there is a very strong analogy to kind of everyday decision-making here. I mean, we all face... A certain degree of uncertainty around most of the important decisions that we make. And you've got a big crossroads that you face when you come to making those decisions. Do you make a prediction and tie the decision you make somehow to some extent to the quality of the prediction you make about what the future holds? Or do you adopt what is often referred to in everyday terms as a kind of a wait and see attitude, right? And so we all kind of are familiar with that kind of approach to how to make decisions about the future. And the traditional way in which uh, academic and other researchers like those that work with us at the Kleinman Center at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, the traditional approach to how you support decision makers through your research is to make the best possible prediction about what the future holds for those decision makers. And in the kind of most traditional form of that, academic researchers make their prediction, put it on the desk, and walk out of the room at that point, right? Because after the prediction, the judgment calls, the politics, as we sometimes refer to the decisions, are something that the decision support researchers stay away from. And it's really another realm. A different way that's a little less conventional, that's a little newer, Uh, is under the heading that you've already used of decision-making under deep uncertainty. In fact, there's a kind of a literature and certainly a network of researchers um, and their partners in the real world who use that very acronym, DMDU, where kind of that convention is turned on its head in some sense. And instead of focusing exclusively on making the best possible prediction about the future, And then having decision options flow from that, turns it on its head and says, let's not try to make, let's not agree on the assumptions that go into a prediction and to model the world in a way that lets us, instead, let's recognize that what an academic might call the underlying probability distributions of those predictions are not well understood. That really, the range of possible outcomes that... um, the future holds for us, is much wider and less well-ordered than we like to think, and certainly than our traditional statistical models allow us to comprehend and accommodate. So instead, let's start at the end. Let's focus on the things that we're trying to achieve, or in the context of climate very often, what we're focusing on are the things we most want to avoid, Right the consequences or especially damages of things that are going to be very difficult to predict about a changing climate or about the introduction of new technologies that are going to help us confront challenges like a changing climate. Let's start with what we want to try to achieve. Let's think through all of the things that we don't really know might happen or not, like the decisions of other governments, like the effectiveness of new technologies like, say, the performance of solar panels improving, or on a very different end of the, of the a range of options on an energy transition, let's say we invent a technology that allows us to suck carbon dioxide that is being generated through the combustion of fossil fuels out of the atmosphere. Right? So there's lots of technologies as well that we have very, a lot of difficulty predicting their performance, their cost, when they'll be available to decision makers and so on. And then, of course, there are the more geological, geospatial, geophysical kinds of things like how quickly is the atmosphere going to warm, how quickly are seas going to rise, how much more intense will storms of the future be and so on. So there's lots of things that, uh, that may happen. And there are millions of combinations of those uncertainties that will, in fact, form the future of five years and 50 years and 500 years from now. And so let's just expose all of the different choices that we might make to all of the possible realistic futures that might happen. And instead of trying to use a prediction to figure out what the best choice is, Let's instead use all of that simulation of all the possible futures that might, in fact, happen, and we just simply can't predict which one it will be, and see how robust, and that's really the key word, optimal versus robust. Let's see how many of the policy choices that we can make will be robust under the largest number of possible you futures. means work in our favor. Robust, and that's exactly what robust means. So that, that will perform well that will, choices that will help us meet our stated policy goals, in this case, surviving climate change as a species, uh, for example, uh, how many are robust under that definition? How many will work under the widest range of futures? And because there are, you know, when you do the the full factorial mathematics of all of the possible futures that all of the different uncertainties we face, Uh, around, say, climate change and technology innovation and policy choices and so on, because there are millions of possible futures, you actually get some very interesting maps that start to emerge from this kind of backwards analysis that say, yeah, this is going to work, but if a certain aspect of the future that we can't predict, we're kind of aware may happen, but we just don't know whether it will or not, uh, it's going to—this one policy approach is going to work fairly well, but once this—once the once the future starts to take on this form, we need to pivot. We need to adapt in the language of the technique. We need to adapt into a other set of choices that we've reserved to ourselves just in case that future actually does happen.
0: What's well, interesting, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that you're not committing— to a certain path, and you're also not assuming the future is going to look a certain way. And that's very different from the way that people, or governments, industry, whatever, oftentimes plan for the future. They say, we expect the future to look like this. A significant amount of investment of time, of human resources, of money goes into that. And then what happens when it doesn't look like what you've planned, right?
1: That's, that's exactly right. And I think the key word... Uh, for listeners to think about in your very nice summary of what we've talked about so far, the key word is assumption. So, you know, listeners will be familiar, right, with uh, cautions about assumptions. So that very often when a new report comes out on that's the product of you know, the very best academic research, there will be a long discussion in the report and perhaps even a repeated reminder throughout the findings and so on that we have made assumptions. And from those assumptions, our analysis flows and therefore our conclusions follow. And so the, the most the important- assumptions could be erroneous. And the assumptions could be erroneous. And of course, the best research always points this out. But in the public discussions and in the decisions that flow from this kind of decision support research, you know, so here's our given our best possible assumptions, our best possible prediction is about this. And therefore, you need to choose among these three possibilities that are grounded ultimately in those assumptions in the complex conversations that happen after that research is on the table. Uh, Those assumptions are very easy to forget, right? And so, and especially when we're talking about the kinds of changes that are so complex, you know, the kinds of changes that certainly the Climate Center is focused on, like a just and efficient energy transition that attempts to accommodate some of the challenges that are presented by both technology change and climate change. Uh, When you've got a lot of complexity and you've got a lot of uncertainty, The assumptions may well be the very best ones that science can provide, and perhaps even more importantly, they may well be assumptions that stakeholders involved in the process all come together and agree about, but they're still going to miss many possible futures that might unfold.
0: And when we're talking about climate, because it is unprecedented and we've never been there in terms of the state that we're in right now, this uncertainty is even magnified. So, so let me ask you this. I wanted to bring this uh, to a moment to the actual Pathways Project itself, right? This is where this this kind of began here uh, at the center. So the Pathways Project uh, is specifically related to the city of Philadelphia. Uh, and some asks that you had of utilities in the area, PICO, which is the electric utility here, um, uh, Philadelphia Energy Authority, Philadelphia Gas Works, they had been tasked with developing roadmaps, adaptation roadmaps for the future, using kind of a not this process that we're talking about right now, but maybe something that was a little bit more traditional if I understand it quickly. Can you tell me what is the background? What exactly were you trying to do with pathways here in the city of Philadelphia and what worked or what didn't?
1: Yeah, so this is this is a very this was very much the kind of the learning experience for a lot of what is now our kind of emerging interest in DMDU techniques comes out of uh, out of pathways. DMDU
0: being deep or decision making under deep uncertainty. Under deep yes,
1: uncertainty. Okay. yes, thank you. I hate acronyms too, <laughs> although they are difficult to avoid. Um, so uh, the Climate Center and the University of Pennsylvania generally, you know, has some responsible standing in our city and our region. Right? We we seek to be, and I think we you know, almost always are very uh, useful partners uh, in some of the challenges faced by the city, region, and the Commonwealth. Um, And so Pathways was an attempt to say, like many regions, Philadelphia uh, is facing some of the challenges of an energy transition, you know, some of the challenges of sustainability as is often used in more public discussions about this. So what kind of future, you know, should we both identify and then work for, say, in the middle of this century, right? By 2050, what kinds of changes? Like, uh, for example, uh, the electrification of how we travel, right? Or how, how we travel publicly on our bus system. Or, and, and, and in a city, on the real world, uh, these, these kinds of large goals can take on very specific Uh, policy decisions. For example, uh, if we're trying to electrify everything, including transportation, uh, some of which might include some private vehicles, uh, do we or do we not reserve space on the curb in front of the row houses that many Philadelphians, myself included, live in? Do we reserve parking spaces on the street for electric vehicles, because electric vehicles need to be charged, and row houses don't typically have gra- uh, driveways and garages. So you gotta park your car somewhere. And the whole idea, at least the conventional idea of electric, ve- private cars, private electric vehicles, is that they charge them at home overnight at some point. And in a city like Philadelphia, or a city like Baltimore, or a city like New York, uh, those conventions are not obvious, right? No private garages. Right, exactly. And so the, uh, what do you do? And so you try to figure out, well, maybe you use the street, which is where most of us park. Um, and, and then how do you really make that a reality? Right? So in a city, uh, these large ideas become very challenging small tasks, right? And that is so much of the work of the governments and the voters of places like Philadelphia. So uh, in Philadelphia, because of our legacy of being, you know, one of the, actually one of the world, if not the nations alone, uh, premier petrochemical facilities, part very much a part of not just every wave of the U.S. industrial revolutions powered by various forms of energy over the centuries, but very specifically... Uh, in oil and now gas and now gas come from unconventional means and coal and so much of that legacy, as well as the political legacy of, you know, looking at renewables and kind of helping to achieve a a just and efficient transition in the face of so much. Philadelphia is really a kind of a ground zero for the real choices because so many of those choices are possible here, right? We could go down many different pathways as a city. And there are very vocal advocates for each of those different kinds of approaches, right? There's been lots of discussion about using Philadelphia's access near, you know, proximity rather When potential access to, say, Marcellus and Utica shale gas, right, and that Philadelphia, as we did with wood and charcoal and coal and steam and oil and combustion, that we can, um, uh, you know, play a part in distributing or play a part in manufacturing the either the energy or the feedstock of that gas and so on. So there's very powerful advocates for a so-called energy hub. Future for Philadelphia, there are also likewise very powerful advocates for a much cleaner ver- version of a, an energy future for the for the city that would in fact be much more about solar and energy efficiency and uh, potentially kind of district heating and cooling kinds of techniques as well as you know closing off the the, the the broken parts of the loop in a circular economy, and just, you know, very different advocates for very different visions. And so what we wanted to do through pathways is to provide a trusted partner and a trusted place for these different visions to be stated and compared, right? That the big, the big contribution a place like the Climate Center could make for the city. On this topic was to serve as that convener around those things and use a kind of a common set of assumptions of models that would predict outcomes that could be compared across those choices.
0: So what would a utility like PICO be asked to do or what would they be so, looking for?
1: So the, stake, so the stakeholders, um, the various stakeholders in Pathways were asked to say, make the best case for the future you are advocating. Mm-hmm. You know, lay out lay out the, the 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 goals of various like, you know, the uh Deployment of a new technology, or the um, mm,
0: a, a renewable technology,
1: for example. A something. renewable technology, or the adoption, you know, kind of the adoption of an existing technology that you know would kind of be rolled out to you know the the greatest extent possible by 2050. You know, w- paint a paint a very broad picture of a future that you would like to see in the in the city and the region by the middle of this century.
0: And my understanding is that wasn't so bold as you had hoped.
1: Well, I think that. Yeah. I mean, I think that as, as we worked through over the last few months, kind of various stakeholders, um, you know, these were some you know large groups of very competent, kind of committed people. The, the challenge was, you know, our, our working hypothesis that there was, you know, very divergent and competing and well-formed uh, alternative pathways that could be Measured and modeled, and and then compared in some kind of a, you know, fair process where we were doing it independently of any one of the pathways and so on, a working hypothesis that you know that 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 stakeholders were ready to articulate those pathways, I think, proved to be wrong. That in fact, and our explanation for that is that there's just too much uncertainty. Mm -hmm. That for people who deal every day with the real challenges of either running and planning future utility investments with looking at the, a, a city or a region's energy and land use and transportation policies and the investments associated with those things that, you know, being able to articulate a mid-century vision is so full of assumptions that it's very difficult to create these bold and divergent kinds of alternatives. People um, are, I think, pretty naturally reticent about that. And therefore, it's much more kind of incremental moves, right, um, over kind of this current status quo. Well, don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Don't put all your eggs in one basket and probably don't even kind of... Uh, talk, you know, don't put don't put that basket on your head and walk around publicly with all of those mm-hmm, eggs visible, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, there's just a kind of it's a it's a it's a more it's a kind of a more dangerous game that mm-hmm. we were inviting people uh, to play than I think than I think um, we we anticipated. And so instead, I mean, our we've ourselves have made kind of a pivot. It's really what it was this experience with Pathways that really led us to kind of think. Uh, more deeply about alternative ways of doing research that supports decisions, and that's what led to decision-making. So it
0: wasn't even so much about the plan itself. It was thinking about how we arrive at that plan. Obviously, this can apply to any city in the country, any place in the world, where these decisions need to be made. Right. Right? But- I'm afraid to make that decision because I might be completely wrong.
1: There comes this whole DMDU thought process. Right, right, right. So that the, the kinds of process, the kinds of um, the kinds of uh, planning processes that each of these big stakeholders does makes sense, is defensible, is very logical. It has to do with the vision of the of, of, of the future that there is agreement around among their stakeholders. So each of them individually makes a lot of sense but there was to put them together was just too big i think of a challenge for stakeholders and there wasn't enough payoff for that for them to kind of proceed with that so instead you know we were thinking now about let's let's go right to the core of what we now understand to be this challenge which is the uncertainty itself right and it turns out that um you know we're the, the, the beauty of being an academic is that it is extremely rare, if ever, that you're the first person to be thinking about uh, an idea or a challenge. Um, and it turns out, in fact, that the society, there is in fact such a thing as the Society for Decision-Making Under Deep Uncertainty. Uh, we uh, went to their annual meeting last year at at actually, at Oxford University, presented a paper about some of the ideas that you know we've been struggling with. Found a community of of researchers that uh, has actually been at work on this very kind of problem for about ten years now. Um, there's actually a lot of highly evolved. Uh, we think. Not enough use has been made of these techniques uh, in the real world of decision making, but some 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 good examples, in fact, of cases where it has been used and so on. So there's actually a lot of literature and a lot of colleagues to to, to begin to work with.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of this whole process. So... An organization, the government, whoever it may be, has to make some decisions about where they're going to invest their resources of many types for the future to address a certain problem, okay? We know we want to get somewhere. We don't know the ideal solution to getting there. So what is the process? There's actually a lot of computational power that's involved here, right? And my understanding is that this wouldn't have been possible X number of years ago because the computers weren't big and bad enough to do it, right? Yeah, exactly. So so. so how do you take these different pathways, how do you think about them, put them into the system, and, and, and move forward?
1: That's exactly right. That, you know, in a way that—and and, and I've had this experience in talking to, to colleagues around these sets of techniques where the ideas sound very familiar. And in fact, they are. What's different is essentially our computational capacity. To approach these same ideas via a very different method. So you know for uh, in the United States alone, um, thinking about people like Herbert Simon, who uh, would describe the you know the decision making of the ant on the beach in search of food, right The ant doesn't know where the food is, and the ant doesn't pick a path, Far down the beach, the ant turns to the left, turns to the right, takes a step, turns to the left, turns to the right, takes a step, and so on. So that there is this kind of incremental bounded rationality. uh, Goes
0: step by step, sees what it can see.
1: Sees what it can see and learns as it goes and Mm -hmm. reacts. And And its next step is path dependent and contingent upon the step it's already taken, but it makes the best decision it can after that first step and the second step. And so on with the third and the fourth and with each. And that kind of bounded rationality much better describes uh, the kinds of decisions that people, as well as ants, actually make, as well as the information that is available to them about the world. You don't know everything you need to know in order to make the best decision, and therefore you're not going to make the best decision, but we also can't do anything better than that, and so it's that bounded rationality. Another scholar Again, from the mid-century, middle of the last century, uh, who talked a lot about these kinds of ideas. For example, is Charles Lindblom, who wrote a very influential uh, paper called "The Science of Muddling Through," and how uh, and and kind of the 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 label that's often applied to this is uh, incrementalism—that you make you make. The smallest possible decisions because of the limits on the knowledge you have about the world. And therefore, you know, one of the, for example, one of the qualities of a good, smart decision is its reversibility, right? So that you can, and both Simon and Lindblom and many others uh, were, were, were expressing the ideas about the risks of being wrong about your predictions, right? And so they crafted techniques or strategies for living in that world. Um, And those ideas live on. What's different about DMDU is it gives you, based on this nifty thing we have now, these very powerful, relatively low-cost, high-performance computers— we can now do some calculations that allow us to stay in the same spirit of, yeah, you got to be careful. (laughs) Yeah, you don't know everything you need to know. Um, You have to kind of take it step by step and continuously learn as you go and continuously improve your policies based on new information that comes in hand. All of these very kind of straightforward and and unquestionable ideas – but DMDU allows us to use those ideas in a slightly different way so that now what we can do is we can say, yes, we can either make a set of assumptions and uh, and then make the best possible prediction. And even if we understand that that prediction has a confidence interval around it, right, it's 90 percent likely that something will happen within, you know, between this number and this number or that kind of a prediction that recognizes a degree of uncertainty we can proceed that way or we can again turn the process on its head and say we're not going to make any assumptions about the future we're not going to we're not going to uh, talk about what's more or less probable instead we are going to calculate and these calculations typically will generate you know not three possible futures, a high, middle, high middle low mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of thing that you often see reported, um, instead going to generate 20 or 30 or 100 million possible futures. Right, The many, many, many possible combinations of everything that we are thinking about that could change the future over time and simply use the computer to calculate the impacts of all those various combinations and all of the distinct futures that could happen because of those combinations and then see how well the policies that we're thinking about doing, how well they perform under all of those millions of possible futures. And of course, as you can imagine, and I'm sure, as I hope, and I'm, I'm sure listeners can already imagine, Part of the challenge with this technique is that, well, what does it mean to consider 27 million possible futures and to look at the way my policies might perform under each of them? How do I possibly use that amount of information and look at is the key phrase there. Visualizations. Of these results are also a very important part of this technique it's It's something that the the researchers who have been lo- uh, working on DMDU for the, the last decade or or so, a little bit more now, um, have spent a lot of time thinking through, uh, thinking through how you can help, because this is very much decision support research, you start to look at what are called partitions right of these results, so that sure. 27 million futures, but let's kind of break those futures into parts, parts where these three different policies work well and other parts where these policies fail under these conditions, and then focus on those partitions and think about um, how those partitions, how that performance of the policies, how it affects how we should proceed. Well,
0: I I think one of the interesting uh, things that I've done a little bit of reading before this on this is Uh, subway maps are used as a way to visualize this, right? So you know you want to go from Brooklyn to uh, the Bronx Zoo, if you're in New York, okay, for example, just (laughs) thinking about subways. And um, there's a lot of different ways you could go. There might be lines that aren't working, but you don't know until you get there, right? right? So this computer model has all of those possible futures, the good routes, the bad routes, the ones that work and the ones that don't, all within its realm of bazillions of possibilities that it's computing. That was a very scientific term I just used there right <laughs> there. Okay. And, um, but it realizes you can't know that till you get to the next stop and you see what's going on. Ultimately, the model will keep you going on the path that you want. And that seems to be the key issue here. Yeah, no, no.
1: Let's let's see how much let's actually see how much work we can get out of the out of the subway, out of the subway metaphor. Because, I mean, the the subway maps, a lot of the visualizations that um, are put in front of decision makers with this otherwise unmanageable decision analysis uh, do look like subway maps. Right. So, you know, the conventional approach might say, here's the subway map of New York. It's got it's got. 150 stops on it and many, 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 many connections across the lines, right? So that to get from many points A to many points B, uh, it's possible to take a bunch of different routes. Now, the conventional approach might say, here's the fastest way to get there. Here's the way the system is designed. It goes this way. You make a one seat, you make one connection. It's a two seat ride and it's going to get you there fastest. That's the optimal way to get from the A we're at now to the B you're telling me you want to go to. Okay, that's great. In a world of deep uncertainty, we don't – it's it's true we can, we can model the engineering of the system, but we can't really predict reliably the performance of the system. And actually, unfortunately, right now the New York City subway system is exhibiting all too many of these very qualities. Serious deep uncertainty. Right? Serious deep uncertainty. You know, just – you know get on the F or or you know and everybody's wondering what are we going to do when they close down the L for 3 years. All right, so the uh the optimal route might be to, from A to B might be to change, you know, change at 14th Street and it's that's the shortest one. But when there is a service interruption, then you want to know by the time oh my gosh, I'm already at West 4th I'm sorry. I hope all the listeners are following this, 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 this reliance on the New York City subway map. But if I am already this far on the optimal path and suddenly something that I hadn't predicted occurs, I want to know what my options are now.
0: And that could be a, a change in political leadership. That could be a new disruptive technology that nobody thought about that wasn't available in the past. Anything that you could not have perceived. In the exactly. Past, right? Okay.
1: the right? De- the definition of a disruptive technology is related to deep uncertainty. Now,
0: now, this is already starting to be put in place in some areas, I understand. You're working on implementing it to some degree here in Philadelphia. Also, I understand in some coastal areas around the world, I've heard, I think in Miami, they're starting to maybe implement this planning paradigm for the future as well. Can you give me some
1: insight on that? I mean, some of one of the, you know, in in many ways, the, the longest standing and kind of most profound adoption of these kinds of techniques, which go by other names. I mean, we should probably throw out one other name uh, that people might, uh, in some realms, c- connect to. It's not always called decision-making under deep uncertainty. There also is another kind of big label for the approach. It's called uh, robust decision making directly, um, and you'll often see uh, the use of the word adaptation uh, in in um, much of the use. And so, probably the 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 longest standing, one of the pioneering um, governments that used these techniques is actually the UK government. So, at the cabinet level, there. Um, was a a uh, it's kind of taken a slightly different form at different times in its use, but it's 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 typically called insights. And the uh, it started around some defense planning issues that, of course, are full of uh, uncertainties, right? And have become only more uncertain. Or right? it used to be kind of a fairly well ordered game with your potential adversaries in in the realm of war and defense. Uh, but with asymmetric and uh, other kinds of uh, terrorism challenges, the uncertainty has arisen, and the tails of the distri- of the probability of distribution, the consequences of very un- uh, very unlikely events have become so huge now in terms of the costs to. to uh, human lives and property, that um, you know there's a lot more uncertainty. So defense has been a realm where much of uh, the, these techniques have been worked out and applied. And in the UK government, it has been extended to looking at other kinds of uh, areas of government responsibility around uh, health concerns um, and around environment. So the UK is in many ways one of the great examples of this. Um, in the United States, a lot of this work has been kind of both pioneered and developed again out of a similar kind of origin. And the RAND Corporation is one of the uh, one of the leaders, pioneering leaders in this. On the academic side, there's important colleagues uh, and work that's done places like Cornell and. Penn State and so on that have been applied again to a wide variety of complex and uncertain systems, like uh, uh, water management, for example, where where you're looking at something that you know has some well defined properties, like hydrological kinds of properties, and so on, but that. Those properties, while they'll continue to exist, are now being exposed to a lot of new, uncertain external shock effects, like changes in long standing patterns of precipitation or so on. So, things that you thought you understood really well, like uh, the, a, a reservoir in the mountains. Um, is now suddenly being perturbed by a bunch of changes that not only are new but are also difficult to predict how they'll prof- how the impacts that they'll have on, in the future. Right? So there's lot there are many realms uh, in which uh, these techniques are starting to be used. What we are kind of uh, most focused on and fascinated with is the relevance of these techniques um, to local or other subnational governments. We think a kind of an underdeveloped uh, use and area of research for uh, DMDU-like techniques is treating a local government as a policy taker, right, as uh, d- difficult to predict the decisions of higher levels of government that are mm. going to impact the decisions that, you know, It's being a mayor – it's being a mayor who has a set of policy commitments who is suddenly disrupted by the unpredictable decisions of a president, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this is (laughs) – all too familiar in Philadelphia, right, where some of these things have been played, not so much on energy, although all on energy, but, you know, on things like immigration, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these are these are kind of very familiar. So what if we start to include the uncertainties that confront local government decision makers because of the unpredictable and uncertain behaviors and decisions of state and national governments?
0: What, how might that— derail what a city does in the energy climate space.
1: Right. A city, in fact, I think we see this. One of the reasons why at this point subnational governments, cities and states in the United States uh, have reacted so strongly to the last presidential election and to the, you know, the very large pivot or attempted pivot on a lot of the climate and energy policies of the previous, the Obama administration one of the reasons why cities and states have reacted the way they have, I suspect, is not just in their commitment to the science that was the foundation of those previous existing policies and so on, but also the fact that they have started making investments, mm-hmm. that they have started to create. You know, it's it's very much the kind of thing that we usually describe when we're talking about. Uh, private industry, right? They like policy certainty so that they can de-risk some of the investments that they need to make and nothing throws them off more like, you know, a sudden change or like you know, uh, different rules in different places and so on. So I mean, Subnational governments start to build coalitions, start to create expectations, start to uh, go into the credit markets and invest in long-lived kinds of decisions like to, um, you know, uh, start to finance rooftop solar or start to create, you know, long-lived investments on energy efficiency in buildings that – Those that debt gets paid off from the energy savings in, say, the new insulation or whatever uh, over a period of 10 or 15 or 20 years. All right. So these these are commitments that have real tangible meaning to uh, mayors and governors. Uh, And when the rules suddenly change, it disrupts all of the expectations that they've created and the investments that they've made. So
0: that's why your assumptions about the future are dangerous.
1: Exactly. So, the, and, and the, the, other, the other thing that this technique does, right, that, that this technique uh, invites decision makers to do is, is not only do you turn the process on its head, do you make uh, no or very weak assumptions about the future, do you instead open to all of the possibilities of the futures as they may unfold, in addition to all that, the technique sets up a, a, a second very important thing. It changes the way decision makers think about their decisions from an event into a process, mm. right? So, in the more traditional approach where you make that, you get, you get agreement on the assumptions, you make the best possible decision, and then you act. Um, and therefore it's very much a decision. It's an event, right? Instead, what DMDU says is, you know, we're going to have to stay in this game a while because the whole point is we don't know which of these different futures, and so we want to prepare a capacity to adapt our decisions as the future unrolls, and therefore what you need to do is you need to develop metrics and signposts that keep you focused on the important futures, you know which future is actually unfolding in front of you? Has the technology suddenly emerged? Has the sea level risen to this point? and as those the 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 handful of signposts that you need to pay attention to so that you know how much runway you have left to pivot your decisions, that you've already started to think about because of the way DMDU has visualized for you all of the possible futures and what you have to be aware of changing and how you respond to those changes. So it changes, you know, the nature of decision making, right? It says that it's going to be an ongoing process that we, don't, we won't know until the future happens what the future will look like and that you want to be aware of these different indicators of the things that seem to matter about which future it is, and how they're going to feed back into your decisions. We talk a lot about the computational element of this.
0: What do the inputs into the system look like? Just if you could describe that to our listeners, because it's a little bit hard to to grasp. And what do the outputs that tell us that we need to potentially change our path, consider another path, what do those outputs look like? Is it our red light that comes up on a machine? Is it a string of text? I just don't understand. I want to understand what that looks like. How does this help this decision maker?
1: Right. So that, that's a good question. So, I mean, the kinds of things that we're looking at, for example, in, in Pathways, right, is that you take the in, on the input side, right, what you're allowing to kind of vary is two kinds of things. The, uh, the, the actual policy decisions, that you are trying to uh, choose from among. So, how many electric buses do we buy, for example? How many uh, how many new uh, uh, gas-fired electricity generating stations do we support? How many uh, uh, how much how many miles of light rail might we lay? These kinds of dimensions around the kinds of uh, the kinds of policy choices that we have, uh, policy levers that we can reach and pull, right? And, you know, how far should we pull them, right? And there's, of course, many, uh, many, uh, many degrees of leverage on each of these levers. How much should we spend on this? How much should we uh, focus on deploying this? And, of course, in addition to each lever, there are all the combinations of each lever, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have a bunch of packages of policy inputs, and then you have a set of uh, uncertainties, right? That you you can, and these are the these are the known unknowns, right? Uh, which is all we can model at this point. Um, that say, um, how how much will uh, air temperature, average air temperature in the region, increase, and then. We have models that allow us to translate what will the impact of the various levels, let's say that average temperature, right, what impact will that have on the performance of our policy interventions, right? If, uh, again, thinking, trying to keep it in the context of, say, pathways, um, You know, if uh, as uh, sea level rises or as precipitation events increase, that may well cloud or negatively impact the performance of, uh, say, some of the solar technologies that we're putting. Right. Mm -hmm. And we start to Mm -hmm. model those different combinations. So you have all of the uncertainties. You have all of the policy levers. You build a relationship between all of those uncertainties and their impacts on all of those policy levers. And when you have a dozen or so of these things, three or four uncertainties and and uh, seven or eight kind of broad categories of policy interventions, and you start to look at all of their combinations, right, without making any predictions about which which is going to happen? Just let it on. Let, let it just get calculated by the computer. You start to have tens of millions of possible combinations of these things you very quickly, goal. and then you see. And this is your outputs question. So mm-hmm. those are the kinds of inputs that you feed into the t- technique. The kinds of outputs then are. What is the performance of our policies towards the kinds of goals that we care about, like a resilient, you know, the, 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 a, a, how many days does the energy system operate, mm-hmm. right? Uh, how much does it cost on the capital side and on the operating side? So if our policy goals are to get, you know, the highest level of energy performance and operational resiliency, and against for the lowest cost, right? Those are your policy goals. You look and see what happens with those policy goals, the performance of these things under all of those millions of combinations that have been generated by the inputs.
0: So maybe you don't invest in so much in solar because, as you said, maybe it gets cloudier, it gets rainier, you can't use it as well. So you have another combination that maybe gets you well on your way but doesn't make you invest in Stranded resources, right, or investments, yep.
1: And it because we don't know about whether or not, in fact, that uncertainty will create that input, that impact on that policy choice. We just don't know beforehand. We build all of the possible futures, and we don't. And effectively, we try, and this is why I think this technique has potential, real traction for decision makers on planet Earth. Because if you think about it, the traditional approach asks a lot of decision makers in the public interest. It asks them to believe the power of predictive techniques that they typically themselves do not understand, have not been trained in, don't do for a living. And Again, in many facing many governments, not only is, do you have this econometric prediction about the future that you don't understand if you're sitting in that decision seat, more often than not, you have one report that tells you, we predict this, and therefore you should do that. And on the other side of your desk, some other constituency or stakeholder has brought you a second report on the same topic that says we predict something very different and therefore you should act very differently. And so not only do you have one report you don't understand, you have two reports you don't understand, right? So the traditional approach makes a, asks a lot of decision makers. DMDU, I think, actually is much more consistent with the way, especially decision-makers in the public interest, act and want to act anyway. It's the, you know, balancing of possible futures. No one knows exactly which future is going to unfold. I get that as a decision-maker. I get that. I get judgment. I get responsible behavior. I I get trying to figure out... Uh, navigating my way through and maybe counter punching more than punching um, as the future unfolds. I, I understand this. This is actually more convincing to me as a model of how the world works and the kinds of decisions I really face in my chair than, you know, the traditional econometric approach that, you know, makes a prediction. And so I think there's actually traction in the way decision makers really operate around these kinds of techniques. If anything, I think this approach respects the real challenges that challenges that we place before public decision makers when we ask them, yeah, nobody knows what this future is going to look like, but you got to make some decisions. DMDU really I think respects what decision makers actually are being asked to do much more than the conventional approach to decision support. So what's the next step for Pathways? So the next step for Pathways is we continue to kind of, you uh know— Work through along the more conventional approach, um, you know, kind of the the the, you know, the the conventional approach to kind of getting agreement on assumptions and actually modeling out a set of predictions. Parallel to that is thinking about building out our own model in the in collaboration with colleagues around the country who are helping us learn how to to implement these techniques uh, to kind of. Th- Think about many of the issues that our stakeholders in the Philadelphia region have put on the table about how um, they're trying to manage the future. Take some of the stuff that we've learned from this and redeploy it into a DMDU model of the region and its mid-century prospects uh, to try to create um, a visualization of all the possible realistic futures that the region may face And some improved sense of how well different policy ideas uh, fare under the whole range of possible futures. Uh, and, And really, we want to do that to spark further conversation with the region's stakeholders about, because what has, you know, what the literature suggests very often happens when you expose stakeholders to, you know, all the things that may well happen, it helps them change their own uh, assumptions about, you know, nobody's, it's, it's rare that anyone walks into one of these meetings having seen the 27 possible, 27 million possible futures that they might have to deal with. It's a little breathtaking. Um, but when you are exposed to the variety of futures that we really all face on this, and you see your subway map start to emerge about when what you under optimal circumstances you know is gonna is the right thing to do, when you look at how many different junctions there are in that subway map and you start to imagine, because now you've got the power of the computer in front of you, what would you do if it doesn't quite go the way you think the future's gonna go? This can be a very useful and instructive tool for decision makers to kind of open up their thinking about, you know, it really would be nice to have a few more options than just the optimal course in front of me.
0: Mark, thanks for talking.
1: Sure. Thanks for doing this podcast, not just this one, but for all of the podcasts that you have done for the Climate Center. You know, we're having just come this morning from uh, our, our our weekly our weekly team meeting and seeing some of the some of the great thinking and the fantastic performance that the podcast has done over the, 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 the these these last few months. And, of, of, of work on this. It has really turned out so well. We are so proud to have you as our host and this podcast is part of what we offer. Thanks. We're for looking forward to the third season of,
0: of the podcast. should be fun. So again, Mark, thanks for talking. Uh, today's guest has been Mark Allen Hughes, founding director of the Climate Center for Energy Policy. As we enter our third season of Energy Policy now... We'd like to hear your opinion of the show. What works, what doesn't, and what might you like us to cover? Our email address is climateenergy at EDU. Please shoot us a note. We'd love to hear from you. And for updates from the center, please check out our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.